Hello and welcome to Triple Bladed Sword, the podcast that looks at the science fiction, fantasy, and horror that we read, watch, and play. I'm your host, Mike Pershawn. I teach English and film studies at McEwen University, and uh, we're doing a series here at the podcast right now on fantasy film from the 1980s. And today we're looking at one of the early films of the decade, Conan the Barbarian. Uh, and, you know, this might seem like an odd place to start, but trust me, there are really good reasons for why we want to begin here and why this film stands out as one of the exemplars of what 1980s fantasy film was all about. I'm going to begin by, by talking about a different movie. I'm going to talk about John Borman's Excalibur ever so briefly. Excalibur came out in 1981, and it was a box office success. The movie is uh, the story of King Arthur. It's glossy. It's shiny. <laughs> uh, the, you know, the, the armor is chrome, and it, it shines lens flares and light refracting off of, of these, you know, the armor, the weapons. Uh, everything has a sort of greenish glow, a fey glow to it. This is a uh, fully fantasy world, and it was as though the movie was trying to create on screen what it did in its paratexts in the the marketing for the film um the the poster for Excalibur is straight up airbrush it's very early 80s lots of color on the poster and the film matches those things um I bring this up because it's going to be a contrast point for what John Milius does uh with Conan the Barbarian but I also bring it up because it's the first fantasy film live action fantasy film of the 80s to really make a lot of money at the box office. This was a financially successful film, so successful that uh, according to Albert Pyun, the um, Hawaiian filmmaker who did Sword and the Sorcerer, a low-budget indie fantasy film that came out the same year as Conan the Barbarian, and in my area of the world it came out a month before, so it preceded it just you know in the nick of time. Um, but that movie as well has a sort of airbrushed look to its um, posters, to the marketing. Um, there, were, there were several posters done for that movie, and all of them have this gleamy shine to them that shows uh, that Excalibur was a major, not influence, we can't say that because Pion already had the idea for Sword and the Sorcerer, but he used Excalibur, um, or Excalibur was the... The, the thing that the producers looked at and said, okay, this is this is financially viable. You can make fantasy films now. And I bring that up um, because it shows that you know that there was a there was a desire to make fantasy movies before the 1980s. And fantasy movies got made before the 1980s. We talked about those in in the last episode. But we get this um, critical mass of fantasy films at this point, largely because of the success of Star Wars. But Star Wars, people perceive more as science fiction than fantasy, even though it has fantasy elements, even though it has space wizards and, you know, light swords. The look of it, the aesthetic of that film was strongly science fiction. And science fiction was already an established genre in film and had been since the silent era. If we include, um, you know, Metropolis, but going into the 1930s with film serials like Flash Gordon and, and, and Buck Rogers, uh, science fiction had been around for a 
good long while. Um, not as the most viable of genres, but certainly more viable than, than fantasy. And one of the things I talked about in the last episode is that there hadn't really been a moment where a film came out that then launched a bunch of other films that were doing the same thing because it had been so successful. But Excalibur was that. Excalibur was this moment. So Star Wars kicked off an interest in doing, you know, fantastic films of all sorts, but it's Excalibur that showed that fantasy film proper could make money at the box office. Now, one of the features of Excalibur that, you know, was noteworthy at the time was that a lot of fantasy prior had been, as we talked about last time, for kids. Excalibur really wasn't for children. It was gory, it was violent, and it had explicit sex. And consequently, Sword and the Sorcerer gets bankrolled, and it's like, sure, go ahead, you know, lop people's heads off, have a heart burst out of someone's chest. Uh, let's have gratuitous nudity for no apparent reason. I mean, he runs through a harem, so you could say narratively there was a reason, but really, I mean, it's gratuitous. Um, so while fantasy had been for kids, the viable fantasy of the early 80s seemed to be for adults. And along comes Conan. And anyone who knows anything about Conan is going to immediately realize, yeah, everything that Excalibur had, Conan's going to have too. It's going to have violence, it's going to be gory violence, and it's going to have sex, and it's going to be explicit sex. Um, but, or, or is it? We're going to talk about that in just a second. But I don't want to give the impression that Conan was the result of Excalibur making big money at the box office, being successful. Um, Conan had been in production since the early 70s, at the very least. We know by the mid-70s that it was, you know, really underway because it's at that point that some of the producers identified Arnold Schwarzenegger as potentially the only person they could think of who could play Conan. And filming was already underway before Excalibur was released to theaters. Conan was more, making Conan into a movie was more about the way in which Conan as a pop culture entity uh, was growing in people's minds. Uh, last time I talked a little bit about how the Brothers Hildebrandt's art helped propel fantasy images into the public consciousness through book covers and calendars and whatnot. And Conan had been in the public consciousness through uh, Frank Frazetta's art probably more than anything else. But then in the 1970s, Marvel Comics started publishing Conan comics. And so, you know, even if you're not reading this stuff, if you're walking through a bookstore, you're potentially seeing Conan covers with Frazetta's art, which was very striking, or you're seeing Frazetta art books. Um, I'm speaking actually from my own experience as a young fantasy fan. It was not hard to find Conan. Conan was an easy find. So he's in the pop culture imagination by the mid 70s and film is, you know, it's never going to bankroll that really niche thing way off on the side that nobody knows anything about. Um, if, they, if they're looking to make big money, then they're going to be going for viable intellectual properties. And Conan had already proven to be such through the success of uh, paperback reprints of the original uh, Robert E. Howard. He was the author of the original Conan stories, Robert E. Howard's pulp stories from way back in the 1930s. So Conan had been around for a long time, but reached this, again, tipping point, critical mass of popularity um, from the 50s moving up into the 60s. Definitely there's a relationship there between the huge popularity of Lord of the Rings in North America via the paperback editions um, and then 
people really excited for fantasy looking for more of the same uh, might have turned to Conan. But Conan was already on the rise at the time. And in, in sort of Conan's popularity in paperback coincided with The Lord of the Rings. Um, and we talked about last time that Ralph Bakshi, you know, tried to make this Lord of the Rings film. Um, and so there was there was an interest in fantasy. But again, Lord of the Rings animated feature um, Conan the Barbarian live action and Lord of the Rings made for, you know, it had an adult sort of feel to it, but not fully adult in the way that we would think of as like adult with quotation marks around it films. Um, something like Excalibur, something like Sword and the Sorcerer, uh, something that got an R rating. And anyone who's been with the podcast since the beginning will know that Sword and the Sorcerer is one of my, you know, not only my favorite movies as, as a sort of, you know, salt and vinegar chips, guilty pleasure, but it's also a movie that my dad snuck me in to see. And he did the same thing again with Conan the Barbarian because I was too young. I was, you know, I was like 11 years old and uh, he took me to see Conan at the drive-in theater and I was underneath the blankets, uh, you know, as we went in and then I got to pop up and watch the movie. Uh, and uh, so that's how I saw Conan. But, you know, that, that rated R fantasy film is definitely a, a real product of the early 1980s. But Conan was very distinct from Excalibur and The Sword and the Sorcerer in terms of its production design. Uh, those movies were leaning into the idea that this that their stories were taking place in a sort of never-never land. Um, King, the, 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 the tale of King Arthur is a legend, and Excalibur as a film signals its legendary nature through the very way it is filmed, with all of these glints on the armor, the fact that the armor is as shiny as it is, the ridiculously verdant landscape. I mean, the, the location shoots that they did for that film, um, it appears either that they went and found the greenest places they could shoot, or they were working with some form of film filter that, uh, in, that heightened the lushness of the spaces that they, they were making as, you know, sort of legendary Britain, the Britain of yesteryear. Which is not, you know, there's not an attempt there to go, this is what Britain was really like back then. It's a, this is the Britain of legend, of Arthurian legend. This is Camelot's, you know, uh, world more than it is um, Britain before, you know, the British Isles before they were Britain, before they were the United Kingdom. Um, the Sword and the Sorcerer is, was filmed at a, a hotel. <laughs> Actually, it's a really nice inn in uh, California. And it has a sort of fairy tale castle look to it. Uh, again, the, the, so many of the sets are obviously contrived sets or they're dressed up spaces in this hotel. Um, the color palette is lurid, to say the least. It is highly saturated. Um, and so there's this sense of, of heightened uh, reality. Like it's, it's, a, it's, it's like watching a Tim Burton movie where you're constantly aware that what you're watching is a cinematic reality, a cinematic world. Whereas we are often fooled by movies that go for a sense of verisimilitude that mirrors um, the way that we think you know, the real world is, which is apparently desaturated and a little grainy. Um, but the very production design of Conan was, you know, trying to create a world that felt like it had actually existed, that it was a sort of historical uh, reality that we'd just forgotten about. And David Butler in Fantasy Cinema and Possible Worlds on Screen says that Conan the Barbarian emerges 
As the one genuine example of sword and sorcery cinema in the 1980s fantasy boom that has a level of sincerity and thoughtful production design. The, the production from top to bottom, everybody who worked on it was looking to take the, the, the subject matter very seriously. And it's not that Borman wasn't taking Arthur seriously, but because he was dealing with a legendary figure, he treated the content as legend, right? I'm going to put a legend on the screen. Um, what Milius and his team in Ron Cobb was the production designer for Conan the Barbarian. Um, their approach was, was, to, was to treat Conan as a historical figure and to treat the world that he occupied as in a historical space. And Butler, David Butler goes on in fantasy cinema and possible worlds on screen to say that Milius's approach to the project was to invest Conan's world with a sense of history and reality, grounding the film in a primal earthiness. I mean, a very literal earthiness. Everybody's covered in dirt. You know, there's very few really clean spaces. You look at Excalibur and everything gleams, <laughs> unless they're getting stabbed, in which case then the blood comes out and it's super red and shiny on top of your shiny chrome armor. Whereas in Conan's world, everything's a little filthy. And so there's the grounding this film in a primal earthiness and Butler goes on an approach that Peter Jackson, oh, we know that name, would endorse for the Lord of the Rings some 20 years later. When we get to Lord of the Rings later in this series, we're going to revisit this earthiness, this primal earthiness that, uh, Ron Cobb and John Milius brought to the Conan project that Jackson will uh, reify when he goes to make uh, his Lord of the Rings films. But right there, that's one of the reasons that I chose Conan the Barbarian as part of this series is that we're seeing a film that has an impact on one of the greatest instances of cinematic fantasy, The Lord of the Rings. Um, while I'm not unable to draw a completely direct line, I know that Peter Jackson rejected the sort of filmmaking that was done for films like Legend, Labyrinth, The Dark Crystal, The Neverending Story. But he never once mentions, you know, let's reject Conan the Barbarian. Let's not do what they did on Conan. But you can see this throughout the film, that there is a, an attention to... Um, creating a fantasy historical work. I remember um, my Sunday school teacher of all people <laughs> saying that, you know, he'd watched Conan the Barbarian on television the night before he, and he was just mystified by it because he's like, Vikings didn't really look like that. And we had to explain to him that, well, that movie isn't trying to be about real Vikings. Uh, the world is a fantasy world. You know, so that was our Sunday school class that day was us teaching our teacher about Conan the Barbarian and secondary worlds, I guess. But if you look at the iconography of Thulsa Doom's cult, this two snakes facing each other over a black sun, uh, it shows up over and over throughout, throughout the film. It's not just some arbitrary design. They're not like, if we put snakes on Thulsa Doom, he'll be scary. It's, we're going to put snakes on Thulsa Doom because his cult is a snake cult, and we're going to make sure that these are consistent, so that there's this recurring motif, which is good, because it symbolizes uh, Conan's desire for revenge. The entire movie is about Conan's need to avenge the death of his father, the death of his mother, or at least that's ostensibly what this film is about on the surface. Although, as we're going to see, um, especially with the director's cut, I'm not sure that that's all that this film is about. But before we get to that, I want to talk about the quality of this film. I think that this film is well-made 
in almost every aspect. The production design is excellent for its time. The sets are are believable. You never look at any of the sets and feel like, well, that's only made from, uh, you know, styrofoam and plaster or something like that. They they look like lived in spaces. Um, the cinematography is great. It frames uh, Schwarzenegger um, in uh, low angles frequently. It's it's constantly making him look huge. I mean, not that you need to work hard to make Arnold Schwarzenegger look huge. Uh, apparently, he lost weight for this project so that he could be a little more lithe, a little more agile. Um, but he still looks absolutely massive. Um, but the camera is constant. It's frequently lower uh, than Schwarzenegger's uh, full height. It's it's very rarely on an a, you know sort of even stance with him eye to eye. Uh, level and so it's always making him look large but there are sequences where when he needs to f- look weak he's really low and Thulsa Doom is framed the villain Thulsa Doom James, played by James Earl Jones is framed in uh, that that heightened look like we're looking up at him or we're just over his shoulder looking down at puny little Conan uh, so the c- cinematography does what it needs to there's some really beautiful shots shots that do all sorts of great things with the lighting um, the infiltration sequence into Thulsa Doom Doom's mountain fortress, uh, where the three principals, uh, the heroes, are all painted up with this sort of night camouflage. They're, you know, white and black uh, body paint. And the way that they blend into the background, it's all really, really well done. So it's a well-shot film. Uh, it's well-edited. The way that it sequences uh, never quite jumps, although narratively it jumps around. And I think that's actually the, the weakest link of the film, is that the narrative is somewhat fragmented. And, th- and that's to be expected, given the pedigree of the movie, given its production history, that it wasn't a single writer who worked on the movie. Oliver Stone wrote an initial draft of, a, you know, and it's a script that, would you know probably still be a really expensive movie to make it was absolutely unfilmable in the late 1970s and the early 80s so they said we can't do this movie and then John Milius uh, did some work on it and it's at that point that we really get a fracture in you know Conan as fantasy entity although really um, don't think that Oliver Stone's script was like some word for word replication cinematic replication of Robert E. Howard's work Uh, it was more like this massive Lord of the Rings-esque narrative with Conan in it Um, and in a sort of apparently post-apocalyptic world uh, really bananas Um, Milius comes along and Milius was a fan of samurai film and so he brings a lot of the aesthetics and uh, philosophical intent of samurai films to Conan the Barbarian and consequently what we end up with is a narrative that's that's fragmented and it jumps around it doesn't exactly know what it wants to be it has some very strong threads but it doesn't have this uh, sort of single narrative thread um, that that runs throughout that will give it that sort of cohesiveness. So it's a little it's a little um, uncertain in its narrative intent, um, but nevertheless, it's not edited in that way. That the editing pieces that fragmented narrative together. Uh, so you know the the various features of film language. This film does very well, and one of the, the most outstanding features of this film is its score by Basil Polidorus. Um, and I've spoken extensively about this on another podcast called Four Color Radio. Uh, I did an interview with Jay Bardilla of that show, and so you want to go check that out. Check out Four Color Radio. You can hear more about um, Basil Polidorus's score. 
before, but you know, really all I want to say about that at this point is that we have a score that is as muscular uh, as its hero. And it really frames the narrative in ways that often the dialogue can't. Again, I, I think that the script is potentially this film's weakest link. Um, the, the action of the film is where it really shines. And I'm not just talking about the violent action. I'm talking about any movement or action that's done you know, via the body. But uh, let's talk about the muscular uh, hero of Conan, uh, because uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger was given the distinction of a Razzie for 1982. Uh, Razzies, the Razzies, the You Really Screwed Up um, award. It's the You're So Bad award. That's what a Razzie is. And so Arnold Schwarzenegger was given a bad acting award for Conan the Barbarian. And I get why people would be like, let's give him a Razzie because we can't understand what he's saying because of his accent. And he was still very new as an actor. And I mean, Schwarzenegger's grown as an actor, but he's you know never going to be an Al Pacino or a Christopher Walken. He was never going to be that kind of actor. But I have to push back on that because, you know, what kind of acting do you need for a movie like Conan? Acting, just regular old acting, according to the good old Encyclopedia Britannica. I had to go to the Encyclopedia Britannica because no one, not even in film textbooks, actually defines acting in a way that doesn't take 14 years to talk about. The performing art, this is what Britannica says, the performing art in which movement, gesture, and intonation are used to realize a fictional character for the stage, for motion pictures, or for television. Now, if you're doing a film that's more about ideas and dialogue, then intonation is absolutely going to matter. But if you're doing a film where movement and gesture rule, then you want someone who can achieve those movements, achieve those gestures, and uh, the book The Art of Watching Films makes the distinction between sort of what we would think of as dramatic acting and action acting. And I mean, I've grown up with this, these criticisms of people in action films. And and it's not as much of a thing anymore because you can get A-list actors who just know that because of the box office associated with it, they might end up as a Marvel superhero at some point in their career. And they're going to be absolutely okay with it. I mean, Robert Redford in the MCU, there's so many A-list dramatic actors in the MCU. So the Marvel Universe has these, you know, actors of high pedigree that they just jacked up on steroids. But in the 1970s, moving into the 1980s, you didn't ask someone like Al Pacino to go get, you know, go go get jacked so you can come play his character. And even if he had, you know, he doesn't have the stature. And so action acting different from other forms of action acting as the art of watching films puts it it demands skill in facial reactions and body language physical strength and coordination but little subtlety or depth in communicating emotions or thoughts little subtlety or depth in communicating emotions or thoughts and i just don't know what people like who did they think should play conan the barbarian because you take a look at the a list of actors in those days i mean you've got sylvester stallone and he was considered but dude's too short He's just too short. Conan is supposed to be tall. He's supposed to be imposing. So, you know, and Stallone really as an actor, although he had range, 
still wouldn't have been able to carry the voice of Conan, I think, in most people's imagination. Clint Eastwood, I can't imagine Eastwood allowing himself to be in a movie like that. I mean, he was very, you know, he's been very choosy about the sorts of roles that he took. We already talked about Al Pacino. What is it going to be? Robert De Niro, again, wrong kind of statue. Stature does not have the physicality for the role. How about Christopher Walken? Because he was an up-and-comer. I mean, let's just imagine one of the most famous lines from the film as done by Christopher Walken, right? You know, Conan, what is best in life? To crush your enemies, see them driven before you, and to hear the lamentation of their women? I mean, it just doesn't work, right? So there's all these... Schwarzenegger gets a Razzie. I think that's undeserved because the sort of acting that this film requires is action acting. And action acting requires that physicality, physical strength, coordination. Um, Schwarzenegger does his own stunts. In fact, most of the actors do their own stunts in this movie. Uh, if you look at this movie frame by frame, you can see that, yep, that's that guy on that horse doing that thing. That guy is really swinging a sword at that other guy who, you know, these are these are the main actors. But most of the actors were not actor. Schwarzenegger is a bodybuilder. Um, so were some of the villains. Um, Rexor, Thulsa Doom's henchman, was an NFL football player. Subutai, uh, Conan's sidekick, or a, best to call him his friend, because I don't really think it's fair to call him a sidekick, given what I one of the threads that I think the film is working towards. Uh, but he was he was a surfer, so his physicality came from being a pro athlete. And then we get to Sandal Bergman, who plays uh, Valeria, Conan's lover. And she was a dancer. That's what she had done in uh, theater and in cinema prior to this movie. And brings that agility, that uh, dexterity, coordination to the role of Valeria. I want to talk a little bit more about Valeria in this film. Because as I was thinking about this whole series... I noticed how, you know, we, we get the representation of women in fantasy films. And in this decade, Sandal Bergman stands in Conan the Barbarian as a very capable warrior woman at a time when that was still not a thing. I mean, you had Star Wars in 1977, The Empire Strikes Back in 1980, Return of the Jedi would come out the next year, uh, Princess Leia... You know, gun-toting princess, absolute dead-eye shot. I mean, she doesn't miss. Han might shoot first, but Leia only has to shoot once. Um, and, I mean, she's going to murder Jabba the Hutt the very next year, but she hasn't done it yet. And we haven't... We've, we've had um, Ripley, played by Sigourney Weaver, in the movie Alien, blowing, you know, an alien monster out the air hatch at the end of the film, but that more as an act of desperation than as capability. We don't get to the fully locked and loaded Ripley with an over-under, you know, machine gun and grenade launcher and flamethrower until 1986, that, that we've, we've yet to arrive there. What, what, and besides, in fantasy, that's, that's sort of a broad view of action spectacle cinema, right? Mostly science fiction. But in uh, fantasy, you get uh, Miyasara in Legend. She's the damsel in distress. She's a sort of standard princess. 
Um, we get the character of Sarah played by Jennifer Connelly in Labyrinth in 1986. She's capable, but but she's intellectually capable. I don't really think we see a character who has the physical capabilities of Valeria there. And then one of the most famous fantasy films of the 1980s, The Princess Bride, Buttercup, played by Robin Wright, is nearly a sleeping beauty who doesn't sleep. Now, some people might get upset about that and go, wait a second, you can't trash talk Buttercup? Wait until we get to talk about Princess Bride. Seriously, I think the reason we think of Buttercup as such a capable female is because Robin Wright played her. And Robin Wright is an incredibly capable female. But on screen, what we see on screen with Sandal Bergman as Valeria really, to, to a degree, won't be replicated until Terminator 2 with... Linda Hamilton, absolutely. Red Sonia is going to come out, um, but I'm I'm looking at like instances where it made an impact in the public consciousness. I don't think we can count Red Sonia as one of those things. And the sequence that most stands out in my mind in regards to the way that Valeria is mediated to us in this film is a sequence where the heroes are escaping from Thalsa Doom's mountain fortress with this princess in tow. So we've got a princess in Conan the Barbarian, but she's currently uh, over Arnold Schwarzenegger's shoulder. And, and Schwarzenegger, again, here's that action action acting at work. Schwarzenegger in a full run with a human being over his shoulder. I mean, again, will is Al Pacino going to do that? Christopher Walken? Even Sylvester Stallone? I'm like, I feel like that would have been a challenge. You need, you need one of the strongest men on the planet to do this. And so there's, there's Schwarzenegger uh, at a full clip. Uh, he's just running with the princess over his shoulder, Subutai coming up behind him with his bow, and they're just booting it out of there. And who's bringing up the rear guard? Anybody who's played Dungeons and Dragons knows if you are escaping, you got to put the meat shield at the back so that all of the heroes can get out. And who's, who's bringing up the absolute, you know, rear here? It's Valeria. It's Sandal Bergman as Valeria. And and not just in some sort of token moment where, you know, we'll, we'll just put the woman at the back because then we don't have to film her. No, no. She comes around the corner it's, it, it, and, and it's it's very, it's framed in a way where she's almost in silhouette and and one of the, the you know, monstrous cave dwelling, I don't know what they're like, they're like troglodytes or whatever, uh, jumps out and it's very, it's very clear there and she just hacks him down and then she moves on. And then there's this fight scene in another one of the corridors that culminates in Valeria stopping as two of the guards have her cornered. And they've got their weapons raised. She's got her weapon raised. And then she slowly lowers her weapon. And it's interesting because this is a movie that has very few visual effects. Milius didn't want a lot of visual effects in the movie. He didn't want it to have that otherworldly feel. He wanted it to feel grounded, right? So there's very few visual effects. But this is one of the places where Milius throws in a visual effect. And it's to make the gem around Valeria's neck glim glimmer for a moment. As almost just to draw attention to this sequence to say, like, pay attention, y'all, because this is important. And and she lowers her weapon, but she doesn't lower her weapon to go like, oh, you've got me, boys, or something like that. She just starts patting the sword, like, against her palm, as though she's waiting. Like, can we get on with this already? That's literally how she looks, is, you know, how long do I have to wait to kick your ass? They come at her, she dispatches them without breaking a sweat, and runs out of the sequence. It's absolutely fantastic. And it's Conan films that will do this again before other 
uh, action movies or around the same time as other action movies doing this with Grace Jones playing a powerful black warrior woman in Conan the Destroyer, the lamentably bad Conan the Destroyer. Um, and again, we've got Bridget Nelson in Red Sonja uh, by 1986. So 1984, 1986, we're seeing women represented in Conan movies, and it shouldn't have been this way. I don't mean that in a, it shouldn't have been this way, because if you look at the, Frazetta's paintings... Women are always in the subservient position. Uh, Vel Boris Vallejo's paintings for Conan covers. Women are always sort of like, you know, butts to the camera um, in some form of fawning adoration of Conan. If we look at Valeria on the poster, she is certainly kneeling next to Schwarzenegger, but it's not like she's clutching his leg and going, oh, Conan. She has her sword. She looks confident. She looks strong. And that would get reiterated in the, the series. If we consider Red Sonja as part of the series, as, as some people do, and Schwarzenegger absolutely refuses to, and, and rightly so. Um, and while we're on the subject of Valeria, let's turn to the way that this film represents sex, because this movie has been accused of having, you know, this really reductive view of females, male gaze, um, that, you know, the sex scenes are potentially, there's an implication that these sex scenes are gratuitous. Um, none of the sex scenes are as explicit as the ones in Excalibur. And it should be noted that, the, that the, the main sex scene between Valeria and Conan is lit in this really warm, comforting lighting. Uh, and that they don't just have sex. They laugh, they talk, they feed each other, and they hold each other. Not just like, you know, sort of like a sweaty grasp kind of thing, but like the, the kind of hug that you give somebody when you desperately don't want to let go. Early on in the movie, and it'd be like, wait a second, we were talking about the sex scenes. Can we talk about the sex scenes? We'll come back to that. Um, early on in the movie, when Conan's village is destroyed, Thulsa Doom, the, the main villain, picks up Conan's father's sword and looks at it. He's got it there in his hand. And if we break this sequence down into shot by shot, frame by frame, Thulsa Doom, sword in hand. And this is this is important because ostensibly this movie is about the riddle of steel. And Conan's father has talked to him about the riddle of steel and how it's so important. Steel. And Thulsa Doom will later on talk about, ah, you know about the riddle of steel, boy. And, and, and they keep talking about it as though it's important. As though it's important. Because I'm not sure that it is. Conan, young Conan, child Conan, gazing up at Thulsa Doom, holding his father's sword, holding his mother's hand. So Thulsa Doom, sword in his hand, Conan, hand on his mother's hand. His, that's what's in his hand, is his mother's hand. And then there's this really long shot. And when you watch the movie, like you might be like, oh, come on, Mike, you're not really going to say, no, no, you got to watch this sequence. The movie slows down here. It's just had a really intense battle sequence. And then we're going to get Conan's mother murdered. But the way in which it's shot isn't classic, not my mother, which then turns into the revenge narrative, right? We get the revenge narrative, but there's this other thing that keeps showing up in the movie. And this could just be the result of the fractured narrative. I, I can readily admit that maybe it's just messy, but... I watch this sequence and the poetry of it and the way that it's framed, and I can't help but think this is some of what Milius was about. So Conan's holding his mother's hand, 
Falsa Doom holding his father's sword. And then Falsa Doom lops his mother's head off. She falls away from the camera. We don't see her head come off. We don't see a gory moment of that. Instead, what we see is young Conan's arm slowly move out to the side as her body falls away. And then he stops and he slowly turns his head to gaze at his empty hand. At his empty hand. The camera then, we get a, we get a shift, we get a cut that moves to a shot behind Conan gazing at his empty hand and right in between his head and his empty hand is Thulsa Doom still holding the sword, still contemplating and ostensibly contemplating the riddle of steel. Close up of Thulsa Doom holding the sword, contemplating the sword, close up of Conan looking at his empty hand. Let's come back to the moment between Valeria and Conan, that warm light, naked bodies, intimacy, and she holds on to him in this one moment. And it's not a sexy moment. It's an intimate moment. It's a moment of bonding. And when Conan and his companions get the job from King Osric to rescue his daughter, the princess, Valeria says, let's take the, f- the, the money he, he, you know, he forwarded us and run. Let's take the advance payment and get the hell out with what we have. I've never had anything. I would walk by tents and I could hear people inside and they were together and I was alone. And what does Conan, she, she holds him at that point. And what does Conan do? He looks at that wonderful little piece of production design that shows us the double snakes over that black sun. And we know that Conan's still all about his mission of revenge. Valeria's not, but Conan is. When Conan fails in that mission and is then crucified and he's near death, Valeria gives everything ostensibly to ensure that he can come back to her. And in the sequence where she fights off these devils that have come for his soul, after they depart, she holds him. These incredibly desperate moments of physical touch, physical contact that isn't about gratuitous sex, that isn't about the male gaze. The way that she holds his head in her hands as he wakes up. And then when she is shot by Thulsa Doom with his snake arrow, she falls off her horse. Conan goes to her and she says, I'm so cold, hold me. Films are contrived. They're carefully put together. Now, yeah, I said that Conan had a fragmented script, but we've got a strong repetition here. Hold me, holding, holding on to someone, right? Um, And the look that Conan gives Thulsa Doom at that point, yeah, we're still working with a revenge narrative. Absolutely. He's going to behead the guy at the end of the movie. But once he's done that, he goes and he sits on the steps and he contemplates for a while and then he burns the whole place to the ground. And that's where the movie originally ended. The theatrical release of Conan ended with a long shot of Thulsa Doom's mountain fortress burning. The director's cut that we have on Blu-ray now does not end there. Instead, we get the princess, who was a devotee of Thulsa Doom's cult, looking forlorn, as though she doesn't know what to do now. Where does she go? What, what, what does her future hold now that Thulsa Doom has been destroyed? She was in on it because she realizes that Thulsa Doom is, you know, he does not care about her. She guides Conan in to the fortress for the third assault, the one that results in the, the burning of the, the temple at the very end. But there's this great shot where she's she's standing there and she's looking for Lauren. I don't know what to do. What comes next? And what does Conan do? 
He holds out his hand. Now, Conan from Robert E. Howard, Conan from El Sprague de Camp, the guy who took over Howard's literary estate, we might say, Conan from just about any of the paperbacks, Conan from the comics, at this point, you know, crushes her in his arms, and then they would, you know, have sex while the place burned down around them. Milius doesn't end the movie that way. Conan holds out his hand, and she takes it. It's a chaste gesture. So this isn't Howard's Conan, this isn't the Marvel Conan, this isn't paperback Conan, this is Milius's Conan. And they, th- and then there's another shot of them walking away and looking back at everything burning. And the, f- the, the, I, and when I say it was the final shot of the film, there is one more shot of Conan sitting on his throne brooding. But I'm talking about the final shot of the narrative. The final shot of the narrative in the, in the um, director's cut is Conan carrying the princess towards civilization, towards hope, perhaps. But it's an interesting sideline of, 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 of narrative that I don't think many people paid attention to. And I'm, I have to wonder if it isn't because of that final cut, but a lot of the content that was hold me, the holding, the, the caring about somebody else was still in there in that original film. Am I trying to argue that at its core, Conan is really a huggy movie? No. But I am arguing that it's certainly not as sexually reductive as its critics have stated it was, uh, or that as as you know, I think what ha- what's happened there is that m- these critics have conflated movies like Sword and the Sorcerer and the gazillion knockoffs of Conan that came out after the film's success because people looked at it and they were like, "Hey, if you just put a bunch of sweaty, good-looking people in leather, you can make some cash." Here's a sword. Um, but those movies didn't have the box office. They were direct to video. Uh, and granted, some of them had many sequels, like the Deathstalker movies. But you watch Deathstalker. Yeah, that's absolutely about the male gaze. There is a, the, the female, the, the version of Valeria, let's say, in Deathstalker walks around topless, constantly topless. That movie had so much nudity that, you know, I was watching it with a friend of mine and my dad was in the room. It's always a little awkward. But my my dad at one point, because all of a sudden there was no one naked on screen. And my dad said, well, the boobs are gone. And then uh, no no joke, like within five seconds, an entire parade of naked women walked by and he goes, but they'll, and in that five seconds, he said, but they'll be back. And then the, the naked people appeared and he said, and there they are. And and that was Deathstalker. That's mostly what I remember about Deathstalker. So when we say like, oh, Conan the Barbarian was all this with women, I don't completely buy it. Um, it. It certainly doesn't seem to be the way that it's handling its treatment of female representation in the film. It could have been a lot more tawdry, a lot more porny, for lack of a better adjective. But uh, we begin here with an adult fantasy film, uh, and it spawned a lot of copycats. Uh, as I've said, these direct-to-video copycats, Ator the Fighting Eagle, um, Thor the Conquistador. There were a lot of Italian movies made in this vein. Uh, David Carradine starred in a movie called The Warrior and the Sorceress, which featured um, you know, a woman on screen with a double set of breasts. So again, um, Conan treating <laughs> the representation of women much better than its knockoffs would. And again, I think it's the conflation of those knockoffs with Conan that earned it this unfair assessment. Um, 
is, you know, it was Robert E. Howard misogynist? Yes. Uh, is the treatment of women in Frazetta fairly misogynist? Quite often. Um, is it that way in the Conan comics? Yep, sure is, up until they got Jason Aaron doing it uh, just recently. Um, and it absolutely is. Uh, is the Conan film? I, I don't really think so. I don't buy it. Uh, another uh, set of the, the copycat moments came when Kevin Sorbo, who had been playing uh, Hercules on television, played Cull the Conqueror uh, in a movie that was supposed to be a Conan movie, but it didn't work out for them to make it so. Uh, and then one of my favorite uh, films that comes out of the lineage of Conan, um, Dwayne the Rock Johnson appearing uh, before he could be bankrolled as Dwayne Johnson in The Scorpion King, which is a wonderfully um, hammy, campy, over-the-top treatment of the type of sword and sorcery hero that Conan represents. Now, some of you might be wondering, what did I think of Conan the Barbarian, the 2011 film with the absolutely awesome Jason Momoa? I thought it had a great poster. <laughs> the poster for that movie was amazing. All of the, the paradecks were wonderful. Uh, the movie was a letdown. It was a bad script. And it didn't have to be uh, as bad as it was. It was it was a sort of standard quest narrative. And Conan doesn't work well in quest narratives, I don't think, as the character was written by Howard, as he was written in, in Conan uh, comics. Um, he tends to just sort of find his way into other people's narratives. Um, if you're going to give him a quest narrative, then you have to go the Milius route and go for revenge. But I, I don't know that that is necessarily the, the best way to go. Now, I'm not an essentialist about adaptations, but it just was a crappy script. It was a terrible script. Um, I love that Jason Momoa got an opportunity to play Conan because if there's a person on the planet who should... It's Momoa. But he, he was given a terrible script. Uh, they had good talent on that movie. They had Rose McGowan. They had Ron Perlman. Uh, Stephen Lang absolutely chewed up the set as the villain. But um, I think... Uh, a really great Conan movie, um, a, a remake anyway, because I think the original 82 version is a great movie for the type of film that it is. Uh, but I think we're still waiting for a really great Conan, the barbarian film. If you want to know what I think uh, the, a good Conan movie would look like, uh, this is what I would do. I would take some of the original Howard short stories and I would, the, the best ones, the ones that, that fans have said, you know, these, these are the best. And I would update them a little bit because as I said, you know, Howard was misogynist and it shows up in his work. Um, and I would, I would take those short stories and I would have sort of three different eras in Conan's life. And then I would string those short stories together with frame narrative of the, of Schwarzenegger playing the aged King Conan telling, I don't know, his son, his scribe, whomever, the tales of his youth. And then the film would culminate with the first short story that Howard ever wrote, which was called The Phoenix on the Sword, which was about Conan as the king. I don't even know if I'd film the whole thing. I might just end with like, you know, the villains bursting into the room and Schwarzenegger drawing the sword and going at the camera like he goes at the camera at that one point in Conan the Barbarian with his wild, wide-eyed look as he, you know, runs forward and then I'd just cut to cut to the credits. That, that'd be my Conan movie, but they're not going to make my Conan movie. I'm not sure they'll ever make another Conan movie. I'm not sure that uh, those are the fantasy films that we need people to be making. We're going to talk more about that in an upcoming episode. But for now, it's been Conan the Barbarian. Next time on Triple Bladed Sword, we're going to be taking a look at Jim Henson's second crack 
at a fantasy film with Jennifer Connelly and David Bowie yeah, in Labyrinth. See you next time on Triple Bladed Sword. <laughs>